0: I guarantee that these prompts will get you inspired and that you'll have more ideas than you even know what to do with. You can download this list of 100 marketing prompts for free at makinggoodpodcasts.com slash 100 prompts. That's com slash 100 PROMPTS. Sherelle, welcome back to the Making Good Book Club. Hello. Thank you for having me back. I am very thrilled to have you back, and this is a a bit of a different book that we've chosen this time, or more accurately, I've chosen, (laughs) kind of threw (laughs) Sherelle right into it. So thank you for letting me throw you a loop here. We are talking about Burnout by Emily and Amelia Nagoski. They are twins, and both have different sort of areas of expertise, but have come together to write this book all about burnout. Which is specifically, I would say you could probably learn things from this book, even if you are not a woman, but it is specifically based on research and findings and um, like their own lived experiences as women. So I know that a lot of listeners of this podcast identify as women and um, hopefully it's relevant to most of you listening. If I were just to say to you, Cheryl, what is this book about? What would your answer to that be?
1: It's about managing to successfully live with stress, I would say. And I think like the subtitle of the book is Solve Your Stress Cycle. And I think that's the, like the crux of it is this idea that stress is a part of life. We are all going to experience stress, but learning how to manage it in a healthy way so that we don't burn out. Like That's what the book's trying to do, It's trying to make sure we don't actually get to that point of burnout and providing with the information to understand why that happens.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think a point that was made really strongly to me in in the beginning of the book is that the way that we experience stress is really not in perfect alignment with the world that we live in now. Mm-hmm. In the olden days or in like more <laughs> prehistoric times, stress made a lot of sense where if there is a risk, which would, you know, like a threat to your life, you would kind of, your adrenaline would get going and all of your different Body systems would go into the right gear so that you could, you know, use all of your energy for escaping the threat. However, these days we, you know, the kinds of threats that trigger this kind of stress response are not usually potentially fatal, life-threatening threats. But we mm-hmm. still react the same way. So, for example, in the olden days, maybe we would be running from a lion, as an example that they gave. Yeah. Now we are like feeling. Something in a business meeting because someone criticized something we did, or the things that we have the stress response to are not the same as they used to. And so their argument is that there's a stress cycle that we are not always completing. The stress cycle needs to be completed to sort of like move our bodies out of this stress response and this, I guess, like heightened um, high stress state. The way that we manage living in the lives that we do now, like that do have these things that stress us out. The point is not like you say to avoid stress. The point is to make sure that we're completing the stress response cycle. So what is that cycle?
1: So, well, when they talk about the lion, it's this idea like there is um, like something that triggers the the stress originally there there is a stressor that will as you said then your body reacts, but what they normally were saying is actually like if it was a lion for example you'd run and you'd run back to the village and then all the rest of the village would come out and you'd kill the lion, then you would eat the lion and then your body would know that it's it's completed because there's been like a celebration there's been a there's been a marked moment to say that threat no longer exists and it's been dealt with, and actually what the problem is now is that we're not we don't eat the lion (laughs) like actually we don't have this necessarily this moment of finish and so it's this for me what I really took away was this idea that completing the cycle is not just okay here's stress as Lauren was saying our body then like makes changes physiologically because it's trying to respond and make sure that we're either in this mode of either going to be like fight, flight or they talk about freeze as well in the book it's like we go through that phase and then it's like we have to complete it there has to be an actual resolution and it needs to be a physical one because quite often, what they were also saying as well is you might realize the threat is gone. So, for you, like, you know, if we're talking about when you were talking about being in a meeting, it's like, well, you've left the meeting and now you're like, okay, fine, I've dealt with that, it's done. But that's not normally enough for your body to understand that it's over. And that's why a lot of people have stress, like, they don't complete the cycle and it's still in their body, it's because there's not been a physical ending. <sighs> And she gives six ways that you can end it. If that help, if that's helpful to share,
0: (laughs) yeah, for sure. And I think I'll just start with the first one, then maybe you can share some of the others. But the point that they make really, really strongly is that the best, the number one best way to complete the stress cycle is physical activity. Um, I think she says for most people between twenty to sixty minutes per day, which does sound like a lot, but Mm -hmm. um, you know that's. They're not saying this is the only way to do it, but based on their research and, you know, everything that they've put together in this book, the single best way to complete the stress response cycle so that we can move on past these stressors and our body knows that we've passed the stressors is physical activity. Um, but like you say, she provides some other ones as
1: well. Yeah. So some of the other ways were like breathing. So really trying to, um, like breathe deeply, which I think, you know, makes a lot of sense We think about lots of people talk about this idea that when you breathe deeper, you're like, you're able to start slowing down other parts of your body. So it's the antidote of where we've been making the stress happen. And that's normally made things start moving faster inside of us. Um, another Mm -hmm. one of the ways was positive social interaction um so getting some good quality fun time with people um laughter laugh it out again mm-hmm. you can see all of these are quite still connected to the body so they're like laughter affection um I really like this one which was a big old cry just this idea mm-hmm. that actually sometimes that's what you need and you know I know a lot of people that do and I've definitely done it in the past where I would stop myself from crying but actually that's ha- like a physical thing that means then your body knows oh okay we're done and then the last one mm-hmm. was creative expression
0: Hmm. Yeah, and one thing I like a point that I like they made about physical activity is that it doesn't have to be like running a marathon. No, um, or like something that is traditionally thought of as exercise. They give an example in the book of like, you know, it could be for someone who has limitations on the exercise they can do, or like a resistance to exercise for whatever reason. Um, they gave an example of like laying down and like really quickly tensing and untensing your muscles. Um, And the book explains how they recommend doing that. But I think letting yourself get creative about exactly how you implement each of these things is okay. The point is to, um, to do something and not feel like a point they also make really strongly is that you can't just like tell yourself the stressor is gone let's move on. Mm -hmm. You do have to actually do one of these, like you say, physical things to move yourself past it. And it's really hard to do this actually, because a lot of times we're still in that stressor, you know, mode. So for example, if I'm like planning an event and I'm really stressed out and the event is in three days, it's hard to take yourself out of that, doing the thing to prepare for the event, for example, and go take care of your body in this way to like move past the stressor response. It's actually pretty difficult to get yourself to do that, but um it's very effective. It's healthier. It helps us, you know, it prevents us hopefully from getting some to somewhere we're burned out. We're much more of use to ourselves and everyone else and whatever cause that we're working on or our work when we have moved past the stress cycle. A quote that there they included in the first section, which I thought was really well said and like just kind of made me think was Wellness is not a state of being, but a state of action. So, just this reminder that yeah, wellness isn't an arrival. It's something that we have to be constantly doing and nurturing ourselves and giving ourselves what we need every day, not just like we've done it and we're there.
1: Absolutely, and I think as well in terms of like you were saying, if you're not like physically someone that's like wants to exercise, it's also they do say like different people, different activities will be more beneficial. So it's also about you trying to really listen to your body and that becomes a theme throughout the book Mm -hmm. which is actually around just so many of us are not in tune with our body anymore we don't actually understand it we don't listen to it in the same way and so really just like experimenting with them and trying to find out you know what actually does make you feel better when can you feel like actually yeah I feel as if that stress has even if it's like you said even if it's something where it's going to continue for a while and you might not be getting rid of everything. And they do say that in the book, it's actually like if you've had a lot of stress in your body, like just getting one like little bike ride is not probably going to get rid of all of it, but at least even if you can feel a bit better, that's a sign that you are moving the right direction. Mm-hmm. It's probably worth before we go any further, just also talking about the human giver syndrome, because I feel like that yeah. ends up being quite a lot of the foundation of the book. So they talk about the human given syndrome, um, which is where one class of people, which are classes like the human givers, are expected to offer their time, attention, affection, and bodies willingly, placidly to the other class of people, the human beings. And so, in the context of this book, what talks about a lot is that you know women are historically been trained from birth to be like human givers. So we're like that our main objective for women is to be to give everything. Um and we see ourselves mainly as a human giver rather than a human being. Yeah.
0: So this first section that we just talked about was about dealing with stress. And then there is a the next section is about dealing with the stressors. So the things (laughs) that create stress. Um, And Sherelle and I are both talking before we hit record that This part feels a little bit more difficult to explain. So I'm going to give it a once over, but I definitely recommend (laughs) reading the book. Hopefully, if you haven't already, because I think they'll obviously do a better job than I'm going to. But essentially, they have this concept called the monitor. And the monitor is a brain tool or a brain mechanism that helps us decide if the effort we're putting into something is worth it. So the example they give is sitting in traffic. Um, if you're sitting in traffic or if you're driving somewhere, let's say you're driving to the mall and um, it's normally a 20 minute trip and it's going well, like the lights are green, there's no interruptions along your way. It's a pretty clear situation that the effort that you're putting in of driving, waiting, um, spending the time is worth it. However, you could do the same trip, and maybe there's an accident, and you have to sit somewhere for 20 minutes, and then um, you're hitting every red light, and a trip that you thought would take 20 minutes is going to take an hour. Um, At some point, our brains all have this point where they decide that the effort isn't worth it. And so they call this the system that makes this decision kind of automatically for us is called the monitor. So, in this section, they talk about Two different types of stressors. There are stressors we can control, and there are stressors that we can't control. And so, dealing with stressors we can control is their solution for this is what they call planful problem solving. So, this is really like having the tools around you to make sure that you can handle when things don't go as expected. So, they talk a lot about like mm, lists and plans and budgets and just kind of I guess, planning for things you don't anticipate coming up. There's also dealing with stressors you can't control. And the tool that they suggest for this is what they call positive reappraisal. Um, And so I just found their description of positive reappraisal. It says positive reappraisal involves recognizing that sitting in traffic is worth it. It means deciding that the effort, the discomfort, the frustration, the unanticipated obstacles, and even the repeated failure have value not just because they are steps toward a worthwhile goal, but because you can reframe difficulties as opportunities for growth and learning. So I think the other parts of this uh, section about dealing with stressors are about redefining winning and redefining failing. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I really liked in this section was their their guidelines for good goals that will keep your (laughs) monitor satisfied, as they say. So I actually like these a lot better than SMART goals. Um, They have these guidelines of what makes a goal that will keep your monitor satisfied, meaning it will have your monitor um, easily convinced that the effort you're putting in is worth it. And like this helps you keep going essentially on whatever you're doing. So the guidelines to these goals are soon, certain, positive, concrete, specific, and personal. So soon like this really resonated with me, like they in their um, description, a good goal is something you can actually start to see progress in soon. (laughs) I'm very impatient. And so I noticed that I'll give up on things if I'm not seeing results pretty quickly. So that I really liked that. Certain, this should be something that you can definitely control. So having goals that are fully within our control and not like, you know, at, the whim or the just like luck. We we need to be able to control something that is a goal. Um positive, some like our goals should make sure that there's something we, that feels good, not just that we're avoiding pain. Um concrete, these this is kind of smart goal ish. Like this yeah. must be something that we can definitely know whether we've achieved or not. Specific, making sure that the goal is like Very detailed, and we know exactly what it is, and then personal tailoring our goals to us, not just like having arbitrary goals because that's what everyone else is doing, making sure that our goals make sense for us.
1: Um, it really interests me that you liked it so much because I think I just was like, Oh, yeah, whatever, like I think I went straight through it, but I feel as if because the soon was the starting point that's what got you. <laughs> and you were like, Oh yeah, this is great. Whereas because there's all because timely, obviously your goals when you set smart goals could be timely, it could be soon, but obviously there isn't the pressure of it to be that it could be a goal that's also really far away. But I do think the personal bit, I think that's something I, I think I use a number of goal setting techniques. Um, I've definitely learned lots of different ones and, always when I do anything with clients someone's like why does this matter because that's the thing that keeps you going and so I think the fact that that personal is added in is actually like a category you have to take off you have to write down whilst you're doing the process I think that will probably be the biggest difference in terms of rather than having a smart goal in terms of actually being like this goal is important to me and I'm really clear of why it's going to make a difference if I achieve it
0: mm-hmm. I think the other thing I really liked about this just the way they framed this, was. It acknowledges that like, we have this monitor, I guess, that makes decisions for us in some ways about whether we're going to keep going or not on something. And so I just really resonated with that in my own life because I know I've set a lot of goals that I've just given up on. Maybe not even a conscious decision. I've just kind of fallen off the wagon. So I guess maybe I was kind of hearing in this section... Like, here's ways to create goals that you're going to be less likely to just, Mm -hmm. you know, ghost on, essentially, (laughs) because they're designed just for you and they're designed for your monitor, which is the thing that decides whether you keep going. Um, yeah. So maybe my reaction to this was kind of a personal one of like, oh, like maybe here's a way to create goals that are more likely to be stuck to. Um, so.
1: That really makes sense.
0: My big takeaway in this redefining failing section was basically this framework that they have for should I stay or should I quit? And they have like an actual worksheet on how to make that decision of like, should I keep doing something or should I give up on it? And I just thought that was really helpful. I think having a bit of a conversation, like having a bit of a acknowledgement that like sometimes we do quit you know uh-huh. and that's okay and that like here's a logical or um a bit of a i guess process oriented way to make that decision instead of just doing it haphazardly um there's like an actual worksheet in there that you can use to decide whether to stay or quit
1: i i think i really like that because i think it's re- i'm probably like the opposite which is i stick it a goal for too long and being able to be like actually has this gone past the point where you do need to give up like it's something that i do struggle with so this idea of like actually writing it down and really looking at benefits both short term and long term because i think that's the thing is sometimes you're just like oh well how do i feel right now but also like taking a moment to really think about okay what's the long-term implications and then weighing all that up okay fine now just the, the either it's a yes or a no um so yeah i really liked that grid yeah
0: yeah Another reason to pick up the book, if you haven't already, Um, there's a few like kind of worksheets like this that I thought were useful um, to look at. So the next part of the book is about meaning. Do you want to kick this part
1: off, Cheryl? (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I like this part. Well, not actually, no. Every single time I come to a book about meaning or purpose, I'm like, oh gosh, where are we going to go? But um, <laughs> their thing is, they will talk And also, because then they start talking about Disney characters and I was really thinking, where is this going to go? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but what they say is, like all heroines and every great classic Disney film, um, we thrive when we are answering the call of something larger than ourselves. And they, I mean, they definitely are this idea that we, even though we are trying to I suppose fight against being a human giver and so we're trying to not be like we are only our only purpose is just to give ourselves to others there is definitely a um a belief on both of them that in order for us to sustain uh like long hard journeys we do need to have meaning they just need to be um a reason for why what you're doing and normally that does involve having to be something outside of just yourself um and she says there's like they talk about like three different sources so um it could be like pursuit and achievement of an ambitious goal that leaves a legacy um, a service to the divine or other spiritual calling or a loving and emotional intimate connection with others so it's not like it doesn't have to just be like your other, I suppose, and your like external factor can look different. And it could be people you actually know, versus it could be a whole community that right now you're not even aware of, but you know, you want to have that legacy. So that definitely was a. I've, I found the chapter quite hard because I think I always struggle with trying to understand what I don't, I still don't know like what my something larger is. But what I liked in this was when they talked about how to have something larger, but still. Not then meaning it has to always just, you have to only give, if that makes sense. This is trying to find that balance between the two because we're trying to actually retrain our brain at the moment. Um, And the reason why a lot of women end up getting burnt out is because they're constantly in human giver syndrome. And so they do try and talk about how to heal yourself if you currently would say you suffer from human giver syndrome.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there were clear... Suggestions on, you know, if there are folks listening or maybe even yourself who like don't feel like you kind of know what that something larger is. Do you feel like they had any useful suggestions on how to start figuring that out?
1: Yes. I mean, they did this exercise around like your origin story and that was trying to help you to unlock what your something larger might be. And there was like a few questions for you to walk through and to try it. So I definitely don't think it was, um, there was nothing like I definitely just read the book rather than doing all the tasks at the moment in time I was doing it. Right. And also in the book, they've got two characters. So there's Julie and Sophie, and they use them across the whole book to sort of try and explain and humanize the science. is probably the best way to describe it. So they do share like their something large as well so that you can start to see how it looks different in different people's life.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and those are kind of like composites of <laughs> different uh, experiences or situations that people might be in. So those examples of those people go throughout the book. And I think that was really interesting, actually. They also shared a quote in this section about meaning, which I thought was They shared a few quotes, but the one that I really loved is from Audra Lorde. She said, When I dare to break powerful, to use my strength in the service of my vision, then it becomes less and less important whether I am afraid. And Mm -hmm. I just really liked that point about when you do get clear on like you're something larger, you're what you're doing to make meaning in your life. It's easier to like break out of the human giver syndrome and to do like what you think everyone expects you to do. And Follow a convention because you can focus more on more more and more on your vision and less on like getting bogged down by what people expect you to do and all of that. So I really loved that quote. I felt like there were a couple of other examples on things you could do to to kind of, I don't know, get at what meaning might look like for you. So one was just to brainstorm. One was to put think about writing an obituary for yourself. So, what would you want people to say about you mm. when your time is up? Another was to like just have other people in your life tell you what <laughs> you know what they notice about you, and they had some examples of how to go about that. But yeah, I thought this was a great section like it's it's one that i really resonated with because i feel like in my life everything mm, so much easier for me to work hard and to keep going and to i guess i don't know the stress feels different when it's something you like care about so deeply and you're really like inherently motivated by so um i was glad that they included this in it
1: well that was the end of like part one which was all around um i forgot what they call part one what what you take with you, and then part two is all around this idea of like the real enemy, and this is probably for me was like the juicy bit, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because I think this talks about actually like some of the reality of being a woman in this society, and therefore like and it talks about like this idea like we could be thinking previously like the enemy that we can concentrate on the stresses, and actually that's a bit of a. Yes. Not, I don't know like we could be misled that's what I'm trying to say because actually the enemy is the game itself and they're talking about how actually the game is rigged and so sometimes if we're focusing on like this actual person that's causing us stress that's not the issue because the issue is the bigger thing again it's the game it's the actual structures and so they talk a lot about the patriarchy as like that's the actual enemy that's why the world is rigged and that's what we're fighting against rather than necessarily a specific person or like sort something else that's happening um and they go into quite a a lot of detail about the different ways the patriarchy uh, is affecting women and particularly like in terms of why it ends up with women reaching burnout um i mean is there was there anything in particular because oh, i feel like we could go for every single one but there's like a lots of different things was there anyone that you thought lauren oh actually this is an important bit or should we just go through some of them
0: Um, I think the, a couple of things that I kind of took note of in this section in particular were the patriarchy blindness.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: The concept of patriarchy blindness. The first one is gaslighting. And the second one is headwind slash tailwind asymmetry. So gaslighting is really all about like, I'm sure many of us know what gaslighting means, but in the, in the context of this book, they're talking about Gaslighting is basically the patriarchy telling you that the patriarchy doesn't exist. So us acknowledging that, like, you know, we can acknowledge that there are all these things about the way that society works and is set up and the expectations that people have of women and people of color and underrepresented groups. Like, we're just often told that, you know, no, everything's fair. It's equal opportunity. Like, you know, um our lived experiences aren't always acknowledged. And the other kind of patriarchy blindness they talked about was headwind slash tailwind asymmetry. Mm. And this is really about the fact that like, based on how you're born, like the circumstances of your birth, like your parents, your skin color, your gender, all of these things have a huge impact on basically your like starting point, like where you start, in your life and how much, I mean, I think this is about privilege um, in, in large part, but like this really needs to be acknowledged as we go about our lives and, um, treat other people and understand where we're starting from. And I think that's not something that there's enough conversation and acknowledgement
1: of. Yet. Yeah. And I think they said in that bit about most of us tend to ignore or forget about advantages we've received, but remember the obstacles we've overcome. And it's just that idea that actually it can be difficult for dominant groups to, because it's, they've sort of forgotten all the advantages that mm-hmm. it's, you know, actually just take a bit, they were trying, basically trying to basically try and say like, it does take a bit of work. Like we don't remember when we work hard, We, I mean, sorry, we don't remember when things were easy. Most of us naturally remember when we had obstacles to overcome. And that's why, like, for depending on what your bias is, like you said, what type of privileges realistically you've had. Um, She talks about how people in any dominant group find it impossible to believe that the road isn't as flat for others as it's been for them. Because they just, it's really hard for their brain to be able to rework that to be able to see it without actually like properly being brought to their attention and working through it. And I I think that there was an example about like a road that was flat and when they're driving one way, she thought it was flat both ways, but it was clearly like a very small incline. So she was going slightly uphill on the way there, but didn't notice. But on the way back, I was just like, oh my gosh, this feels so easy. This is great. And it's like, Mm -hmm. so often we do just think the road is flat. We all think it's exactly the same and it's not, but we can't see it in the same way as someone else to acknowledge the difference
0: hmm yeah um another part of this section that I thought was great was about unlearning helplessness mm. and they gave this exam or they talked about basically like studies of I'm trying to remember exactly
1: there were studies of the rats that are like they're zapped, and this idea that they 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 get a pain that's underneath their feet and so they don't. Um then when even a door appears, because they haven't been able to get out for so long, they don't even try and leave. And it's this idea that they're just like this is hopeless. And then it means that even in the future when they're put into other situations where like they could leave straight away, they've now just learnt that actually there's no point in this pain is going to come to them. And that's what happens to like the same thing happens to humans. That is if you have been like hitting your head against a wall for so long, you've been in a situation of pain, you've learnt helplessness. You've got to the point where you don't believe there is any way out. And that's actually why even when the actual rules or the society structure or anything else changes, like we have to unlearn our helplessness because it's otherwise we're just going to carry on as before.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like understanding when we actually do have agency and can mm-hmm. do things can be hard to like see that when for so long we've, like you say, just been kind of stuck and we have been actually stuck. So seeing when we're actually not, Stuck is hard. Yeah. So their comments about the patriarchy are really feeling your feelings about the patriarchy is important. Unlearning helplessness. And then they go back to this idea of meaning. So one way to smash the patriarchy is by making meaning, by engaging with you or something larger. Um, and I think they make a point here that like it's not each one of us individually isn't going to be able to like single handedly eradicate the patriarchy, but we, you know, focusing on your attainable, like your, um, goals that you made using their soon concrete specific, whatever, all the things are in their (laughs) model of goal setting. Um, that's kind of like the way that we can move forward and, um, make us make changes to engage with your something larger. Do you want to talk about the bikini industrial complex?
1: Yeah, I'll talk about that with the multi-billion industry basically made around making women feel that their bodies are inadequate so that we can spend lots of money on... Uh, whether it's surgery or whether it's the clothes we're wearing or the fitness pills people take or the going to the gym, all these things are basically trying to remake us, um, change our body. And what I was like, so they just use Bihini to talk about the industry in general, about making women believe that there's something wrong inherently with their body. And they talk um about the BMI study um, and how like when that metric got put in, I think it was something like seven of the nine people who were responsible for that all had a invested reason why it would benefit them to say like it's unhealthy for people to be at a certain BMI, um, and so they basically was just like the whole thing's a lie. And I know there's lots of um, it's the first time I'd ever heard that, but you know I think we're very much aware that for a very long time companies these multi-million billion companies have had done service studies and they do put out reports which make it feel as if something is bad for us or something's unhealthy for us. And in reality, it's not, but it's just, you know, they're twisting it to make sure that we keep spending money with them. So I was like, I could really see how that could have happened. Um, But what I actually liked about the, when they spoke in this chapter was about this also the sort of response women who decide to then not follow the rules and they don't try and have a thin body like how they get treated and there was a quote that said like thin bodies are the bodies of women who behave themselves and it's like you follow the rules you're sticking to what the patriarchy's told you you're following the instructions and so actually when we see women who don't fit that ideal of a body and are confident with it the reason why so people like want to actually angers other women is because they are feeling like, well, why do they get to break the rule? Why do they get to break the rule and be happy? (laughs) Whilst in the meantime, I'm trying really hard to try and fit into the, like, structures that have been put out. And that that was a really, like, uh, awakening thing for me to think, actually, yeah, it's not even just about, like, the health implications, like, and they were saying, like, lots of it, It's like, it's not actually unhealthy. And in many cases, some of the, the, there's much more danger, for example, like yo-yo dieting and having massive changes in your body and going up and down. But it all goes back to the like structure and being like, are you following the rules or not? Um, And some of the ways they taught you to like counteract it was to have this new idea of new hotness. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh yeah, I could, I could deal with new hotness. And so um, it's like you redefining. So she talks about how um, it's about looking at redefinition of what beauty is, and sort of you can play it as a game with yourself to be like, this is your new version of hotness. Whether it's you try a new outfit, you change your hair, like your body's changed after you've had a baby, like anything, it's just like this is a new version of hotness. It might not be exactly the same as what my body was three, five, ten years, whatever but this is now my new version of hotness. And I thought actually that's a real, uh, positive, um, angle for women to take with their bodies. Cause I think there's a lot of people women that don't necessarily have the great relationship and just really trying to accept exactly as you are today as a new version of hotness, mm-hmm. I thought was a great idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love this section. I'm, this is something that is personal to me and I feel really strongly about, and I'm I think it's really important that they included it in a book about burnout because so many women spend so much, like not just money and effort, but like time and um, mental energy, (laughs) mental energy on this, on what they look like and appear to others as. Um, And so they made, they made this point really strongly and with science that yes, the BMI is kind of not a thing. It's not legitimate. Um, weight and health are not the same thing. And that stigma is the actual health hazard, like Uh the stigma of of looking as people don't want to look a certain way. So they do things that are, you know, yo-yo dieting or um, just like the shame and all of that kind of thing are what is actually unhealthy for people. So I thought this was a super important part of the book. Um, and yes, like Cheryl said, they included some strategies um, on how to kind of move toward a different perspective on 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 women's bodies. So yeah, the new hotness, mess acceptance, and then kind of just this self compassion um, mm-hmm. to yourself and your body, and just kind of figuring out how to really ask yourself what you need and then give it to yourself, and not not always be super critical um you need to change to be valuable (laughs) but for that we can be so easily
1: but also like you said about like what does your body need the last one was strategy four in the book was about high body what do you need and this goes back to what i said earlier about they kept saying like we need to listen to our body it's like actually if you're hungry eat but also it's Mm -hmm. not this idea like actually for so long people women haven't been listening to their bodies anymore so it's like actually asking your body like what do you need right now what should you be putting into it to make it feel better? And also like, yeah, and and it has obviously uh, quite close relationships with exercise, which is like doing what's right for it, actually what's right for it, rather than just being like, I'm trying to exercise because I want to lose weight or I'm just trying to get ripped for a certain look. It's like actually what does your body need to be strong and healthy and like carry you properly and do all the tasks you're doing rather than just seeing it as an instrument like that, that was detached from its actual purpose.
0: Yeah. So the next chapter is wax on, wax off. And this one is all about connection with other people. I, my big takeaway from this section was really about the two kind of critical ingredients I would say of, 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 I guess, connection that is really meaningful is trust and connected knowing. Mm -hmm. Um, and they call these the, the components of Uh, the bubble of love. (laughs) Um, And this is just this, I guess this like sense of connection with other people that helps us to like connect, but also co-regulate each other is the word that they use. So, you know, if, if we have this trust between us, if we have this connected knowing and shared interest and shared, I don't know, um, kind of state of mind in a sense that, there are actually like physiological benefits that we can give each other by being
1: in this bubble. Um, What were your takeaways from this section? I think they talked about like connection quite often, we also just think of like um, marriage type relationships. And she talks about how obviously a lot of the examples in the book are to do that because of that's what's studied, but it doesn't have to be like that. Actually it can be all different types of people. Um, And I think really just remembering this idea of like, we, like we are made to want to belong. But again, when we look back to this thing about human givers, it's like, we don't, to belong doesn't mean we have to give up all of ourselves. And actually, how do we, for me, there's always just this like balancing act. It's this idea like I need to belong and I, you know, I want to be in a group and I want I want to feel safe and, you know, all those sort of primal urges. But how do I do that in a way that doesn't mean that I'm having to give everything on myself. So I just get walked over and then there's like, it's not actually good for me, like genuine connection in a very much more of a reciprocal way, um, was what I got from it. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: the next section was interesting yeah. to me because it was called what makes you stronger, which, uh, I guess I just did not expect it to go in the direction that it went with that title, but the short summary of this section is that what makes you stronger is rest Uh Um, whether it's like your muscles rejuvenating themselves and getting stronger by resting or the fact that we need sleep to kind of like close the book on one day and get ready for the next day they spend quite a bit of effort in here showing the different types of rest and why rest is so important for us to be able to you know live the lives we want to live and make the impact that we want to make one thing that i found really interesting was this idea of 42 percent yeah um (laughs) do you want to talk about
1: that a little bit so they after talking about like why it's present they were like so how much rest do you actually need and they were like science says 42 percent so 42 percent at the time your body and your brain in a day like needs to be rested. so that's 10 hours out of every 24. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like, <laughs> but it doesn't have to be all sleep. So I think that is something like in the book, they actually do work, go through some of the other things that get classed as rest. But I still think it's quite a high number. Um, and for a lot of people it will be difficult and they do write none that. They say like, obviously that's not going to happen all the time. But again, since this book is about burnout, it makes sense. Like actually, if most people think I can get away with six or seven hours and they don't, and every, all the rest of their working wake day, they're busy, you're missing out on three to four hours a day. So actually, and they really did hammer home this help, this point about like how essential rest is. And I think mm-hmm. this isn't the first, I think, um, I Huffington, I read her book about sleep. Like this is what is ruining. This is what's one of the definite causes of burnout is actually, we aren't getting enough rest on a day-to-day basis and so this idea of like how there's like a chart and it's like even if you're not at the ideal now can you try and plot out what your ideal is and tr- try and work out how to get there mhm
0: the next and f- kind of main final section is grow mighty um talk to me about this section. <laughs> what the mad I, woman in sure the I attic have <Yeah>.
1: I don't even know where to start here. <laughs> the Mad Woman. Is, I mean, it's quite funny because the, the story they read, the story they mentioned is not a book. I think it's I think it's Jane Eyre. And I was like, oh, I don't think I read Jane Eyre. And it actually made me... Oh my much.
0: gosh, I love Jane Eyre.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, I don't think it was on the curriculum. I think, I think it probably is, but I just never read it. So... Um, But this idea of like, how do we, we all have a mad woman in the attic basically, (laughs) and we all need to identify them and we need to identify them and give them personality so that they're separate so that we can do, I'm going to probably get it wrong. Is it the connected knowing if you manage to separate them from yourself? Because when we are a person... Like we don't basically, we don't really treat ourselves always the best. So when you're able to separate it, then it's like the same way that you're probably nicer to your friend and you're more compassionate. And because a big part of this chapter is about self-compassion is by identifying the mad woman in the attic as someone else, you can start to see them as part, like separate from you. And then you can be Mm -hmm. more compassionate to them and treat them the way you would other people And that will hopefully make them happier and like supported and loved. And that will help you in the longer term. Um, And they, they do talk about some different examples. They use the women again to talk about like how the mad woman um, can look. And one of the things I definitely um, like one of the things they mentioned was like half, half self-criticism and like toxic perfectionism. And I think toxic Mm -hmm. perfectionism is definitely something that I see like myself and just so many other women doing all the time. So I could see how that's like super common
0: yeah I like that they just make the point super strongly that these are not good things, <laughs> you know being super self critical and and perfectionist sometimes we can aspire to that, I think, and they are very clear that like these are not yes. things that serve us well, being so hard on ourselves and like listening to the mad woman and all of the things that she says um that might sound like they're being helpful and kind of motivating to us, but they're not.
1: Yeah, about getting rid of the whip. Yeah. Yeah, that was good.
0: Yeah, and I think finally they just kind of make this point that self-compassion is hard. It's not Uh easy to, like, be kind to yourself and, you know, help yourself hear the things that you need to hear and uh, do the healing that we need to do. This is hard work, um, and it's scary, but it's important. And so I think just that acknowledgement that, like, this work – is difficult, you know, to kind of unlearn these ways of being that many of us have just grown up with and always have been. It's not easy. So, um, and then, yeah, they talk about gratitude. So <laughs> there's some good, <laughs> good suggestions there on gratitude and they kind of like, oh, like, gratitude, but it actually does work. <laughs> the reason why it's in every
1: self-help book in the world is because it works. <laughs> totally. Any final thoughts before we totally wrap up here? Yeah. I mean, I think my biggest thing was just like really understanding that concept of like human giver syndrome and really re-looking at like how to really acknowledge the fact that I think the reason why burnout happens is just telling people to like, um, you need to work less. For example, you need to do self-care. It's not going to work. But this book actually like really did try and work through some of the, I suppose, things that are in a woman's mind and stuff to do the patriarchy, which is why it's some of the advice in other books doesn't necessarily work as well. So I really I really did think this is actually like quite a refreshing book to me. It's not like one I have read before. And I think it, if you have got time to read, I definitely would recommend it because I think it just approaches it from a very different way. Yes, it talks about rest, but the rest of it isn't about that. It's actually about managing actually as a woman in this world right now to try and avoid burnout rather than like trying to change the actual system.
0: Yeah, I think it just provides a really important context that isn't always there when we're always focusing exclusively on like self-help and like all the things we need to be doing without acknowledging that like we live in kind of a messed up yeah. <laughs> world in a lot of ways. I think it it's just kind of an act of kindness to ourselves to acknowledge that there are things about the the world we live in that aren't setting us up for success. And here are some ways that we can... mitigate that. So I agree. Great read. Um, Not explicitly business related, but certainly related. So hopefully you all got something out of it. I will let us wrap up here. Do you want to say what book we're doing next?
1: Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller, which I am really excited about because storytelling, messaging, I think is really important for us as business owners to understand that. Um, This is a a book I read a few years ago, but I'm excited to reread it ready for the next episode. So yeah, come back and listen.
0: Yep. Yep. This is the first episode that we'll be really digging into storytelling, which is something that is super important in marketing in particular. So I know that I'm really excited to go back to this book too. So thank you so much for doing this episode with me, Cheryl. I am so looking forward to our next one and yeah, I hope everyone enjoyed. Let us know what you thought.